With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
guys broadcasting live Billions of people Cameras on the streets tracking who we meet You call this liberty Rifleman Radio Show. Rifleman Radio Show is dedicated to bringing you the absolute best information possible on rifle marksmanship, rifle safety, the heritage and history belong to this great nation, and the things that each and every one of us can do to safeguard the freedoms and liberties that living in this nation affords us. I want to thank everybody for listening tonight. Uh, We're going to be discussing tonight the battles of August of the American Revolutionary War. We're going to take a kind of a short uh, break from our series on the prepared rifleman. We'll pick it back up next week. I just uh, I don't want to get too far away uh, from some of the other things we do, like uh, like talking about the the history of the American Revolutionary War. I find it absolutely fascinating, and I love to read about it. Uh, I want to discuss it, and I hope you guys do too. Uh, You're welcome to call in to the show if you have any questions or if you want to to make a comment about the battles or if you want to thank uh, some of your local Appleseed Project crew, you can call in. The number is 347-308-8790, 347-308. Eight seven nine zero. Once you call in, uh, Sam, the, uh, the co-host and call screener, will uh, grab you off the air and uh, just ask you what you want to talk about and get you set up, and then let me know, and then we'll get you on the air. All right. Like I said, you can call in. You can call in basically about anything. We'll be glad to take your calls. If you want to uh, thank your local Appleseed crews for the work that they're doing, the time that they're volunteering. Uh, in order to push the mission forward and uh, to do their bit to ensure that Americans are being taught the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the nation, then please do so. If you want to talk about the 
American Revolutionary War, then uh, we'll be glad to take your calls on that, too. We'll be talking about the Battles of August tonight. We'll be talking mainly about we're going to focus on the, the Battle of Long Island, uh, because that's going to be one of the most important battles of August across the the eight long bloody years of the American Revolutionary War. But we'll we'll, we'll touch on a few of the others. Uh, I've got the, the whole list of the battles of August. And August is one of the most active months uh, for fighting during the the war. There were uh, there were many battles each year in the month of August because the uh, the winter uh, winter uh, the which could be classified as you know late fall to early spring uh, more the battles were generally not fought in the inclement weather uh, they were mainly fought in fairly decent weather because there weren't uh, there were no uh, uh, Gore-Tex there was there were no heated vehicles things like that. Uh, gunpowder was loose and poured into a loose open tray on the muskets. So anytime there was bad weather, then uh, it certainly tended to put a damper on the fighting. They tried to concentrate most of their fighting during the uh, the warmer, drier months. <clears throat> and August is certainly one of those. So there's probably, uh, uh, I didn't look at the list, but there's probably about uh, maybe two dozen battles during the months of August from 1775 to 17. 1783, there weren't any battles. There, there were actually very few battles fought, uh, especially in uh, on, in North America. Uh, there were a few other uh, battles fought, uh, kind of finishing up around the world. We had uh, uh, battles in uh, the Bahamas and uh, 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 Cotaloa, which was a naval siege, uh, the Turkish and uh, Caicos Islands, uh, there were other sea battles in 1783 finishing up, because remember, the the American Revolutionary War was actually the, the very first world war, and it was fought uh, on almost every continent uh, with a long list uh, of countries uh, they were fighting each other. It wasn't just uh, America and England. It wasn't just the, the North American colonists uh, fighting against England. There were the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, uh, you name it. Uh, everybody that uh, had a grievance with somebody else uh, where they were picking this time to try and settle some of those grievances. And we'll talk about, uh, when we talk about the battle tonight, uh, I'll, I'm, I'll mention some of the other battles that weren't fought in North America, but I've got them uh, on the list anyway, so you'll kind of see that uh, it was uh, an actual world war. It wasn't just uh, being fought simply in New New England. It was fought all over uh, the eastern seaboard from Maine to the Gulf of Mexico, up and down the uh, Mississippi River, And then uh, from there into the North Sea, uh, into the coasts of Europe, uh, Africa, South America, uh, India, you name it. And somebody was fighting someone somewhere. 
Uh, I want to thank everybody again for for listening tonight. We certainly appreciate it. And I'd also like for you guys to make sure that you – well, I'm doing the, the series right now on the prepared rifleman, and uh, we're, we're doing a lot of discussion about self-reliance and uh, about prepping. And I'm hoping that that's something that you guys want to hear about because <clears> – <throat> Uh, I, I thought quite a bit about the information that the, the radio show should be putting out. And in my mind, I'm thinking that one of the best things that I can do for folks right now is to make sure that I'm putting out information that can help you to uh, to weather man-made and natural disasters, cessation of services, to help you become more self-reliant in the event that you have to do so, in the event that you have to depend on yourself. And, you know, depending on yourself and being self-reliant, you don't need uh, a man-made or natural disaster or a cessation of services for this to be a benefit to you, right? Uh, It can help you in your everyday life. If you can uh, grow uh, even just uh, one five-pound sack of potatoes, then uh, you saved yourself that much uh, that you had to buy. And you've taught yourself that much about growing potatoes and about being self-sufficient. So the things that, uh, that we're talking about, I want to make sure you understand, these things aren't just for uh, the end of the world or the zombie attack or the... Uh, or the alien uh, uh, invasion. This is; these are things that you should be doing uh, and incorporating into your your everyday lifestyle, making them habits in your everyday lifestyle. Especially things like we talked about last week about the uh, the personal safety uh, in your everyday life. That that is certainly doesn't require any type of uh, end of the world scenario for you to benefit from that. Like we talked about last week, the the world is a dangerous enough place without there being any end of the world, right? It's still a dangerous place, and you don't need the end of the world to come for you to, to put yourself in danger. You're living in danger every single day. And some of us, more than others, and the best way to uh, to make it through it is to be continuously stacking the odds in your favor. That means doing the things that you can do uh, in order to to be stacking uh, the odds that you will uh, have your home broken into or that you'll uh, put yourself in a position where you can be assaulted or, or robbed or something like that. You're keeping those things to a minimum, Right. And uh, we'll talk about that again a little bit last week, uh, the next week, because last week uh, we got uh, most of the way through it, but there are a few more things I want to talk to you about. But we'll talk about that again uh, for a few minutes this next week. Uh, I wanted to finish talking about uh, things you can do to provide for your personal safety uh, when you're away from the home. We talked about uh, personal safety in the home, but... I want to finish up uh, next week with talking about some things that you can do when you're away from home, which is then a whole a whole lot different than in the home, but there are a few things that are different. Tonight we're going to talk about uh, 
the battles of the American Revolutionary War. Now, we know that uh, that the American Revolutionary War began in earnest on April 19, 1775. And that's when a, an expeditionary force uh, sent out to uh, seize the uh, weapons, uh, gunpowder, any, we- any weapons of warfare, etc., were... <clears throat> Uh, that were being kept in Concord, uh, General Gage sent a force out to seize those. The force was repelled and then had to fight their way all the way back to Boston. Uh, by the end of the day, the, the British forces uh, in the colonies were pinned up in Boston and a siege began, and the siege lasted uh, basically for a whole year until uh, until the troops were forced out of Boston uh, after the uh, uh, after uh, the artillery pieces were taken and placed in Dorchester Heights and were able to threaten the port of Boston, uh, the British packed up and left him. There were a few additional skirmishes between the uh, the time that the siege began and the time that it ended, and uh, and then immediately after. The the first of these <clears throat> that occurred in August was the Battle of Gloucester, and uh, that was. Uh, that was on August uh, 5th or so. Uh, the British ship, the Falcon, this was commanded by uh, John Lindsay, uh, was cruising off the coast and and then sailed uh, right off of Ipswich Bay. And Captain Lindsay uh, then sent a barge of men, once he got into the bay, sent a barge of men to the shore in search of livestock. Now that's because that during the during the siege of Boston, uh, any of the uh, there were no way to get any supplies or provisions by land. Anything that came into Boston had to come by way of sea. The British fleet still controlled the sea, and any provisions coming into Boston, every single thing that came into the town had to come by sea. I mean, they sent a, a lot of ships out to forage. Uh, for provisions, hay, livestock, uh, any kind of food, anything like that, and that's what Captain Lindsay was doing with the with his ship. Uh, anyway, once he did it at Switch Bay, he sent a and a barge of men uh, uh, on shore to search for livestock. Now there was a local farmer though uh, who happened to see the guys coming in. He took off and rounded up a few of the other local folks uh, and. They gathered together, and before the barge could land, they drove the barge off with musket fire. And then the barge uh, ended up returning to the ship, the Falcon, HMS Falcon. Then Lindsay sent it to investigate uh, uh, a ship that was in the harbor. There was a scooter in the harbor. But the ship only had ballast in its hold. That's uh, 
when ships were empty, they had to have something in them to make sure that they were they sat in the water correctly. And most of the time, it was things like uh, you know large rocks or it could be uh, metal bars for ballast, something that was uh, fairly heavy uh, but not bulky. And we could set uh, at the center point of the ship at the lowest point and keep the keep the ship upright uh, in the water and let it uh, have and have it be drawing the right amount of water. And when they checked the ship, that's all I had, just had ballast in it. Uh, but Captain Lindsay continued to cruise off the Cape for the next few days. And uh, as he was driving along, he actually stopped at a few of the, the local ports and impressed some of the, the local men. By impressed, I don't mean he, like, showed off his muscles or anything. What I mean is the uh, British, the Navy, uh, had a habit of just pulling into a port and grabbing uh three, four, five, six, a dozen men, and saying, uh, all right, guys, you are now part of the English fleet. Whether they wanted to or not, they would just grab them, uh, if need be, put them in chains, take them to the ship, and they were now British seamen. And that's what they did uh, as they were going up down the coast. Now, on about the 8th or 9th of August, the, the records weren't exactly clear on it, Captain Lindsay spotted a couple of American schooners making sail for Salem uh, early in the morning, right around 8 o'clock. Now, his ship quickly overtook and captured uh, one of those schooners without incident. And uh, despite what the movies, what you see in the movies, which is, uh, you know, every time one ship sees another one uh, in a war or something, they begin firing their cannons and sharpening their swords and stuff like that. Matter of fact, that that is... Uh, that was not the rule. Uh, the rule was when a ship that was bigger than yours pulled up beside you, you just stopped and you did whatever they asked you to do because uh, because if not, they would uh, shoot you and kill you and sink you. So most, most of the time, the ships did not engage in battle. Uh, they simply struck their colors and they stopped and they said, okay, whatever Whatever you need me to do, I will. If they could get away, they would. Uh, but normally, uh, if they could not get away, then uh, they would uh, they would stop. They would lower their sails, and they would allow those to be boarded. That's what Lindsay did with this one. And he took uh, the crew as a uh, prize. He put his own crew aboard the ship uh, to man it before taking off after the second scooter. Now, the second scooter, the captain uh, was familiar with the area. And uh, he sailed his ship into an anchorage in the, har- the harbor. Then he sent uh, uh, a crew of 36 of his men on three small boats. Uh, or he sent, I'm talking about Lindsay. Lindsay sent a crew of his men on three small boats uh, to capture the ship. You know, he stopped his ship a little bit farther out. He put his 36 of his men in boats and sent them after the schooner that uh, – uh, that admit to an anchorage here in the harbor. Now, among the crew that was sent out were 10 of the guys that had been impressed, 10 of the Americans, including four folks from Gloucester. Uh, once Captain Lindsay's ship, the Falcon, uh, sailed in, it caused uh, townspeople to raise the alarm, and the Gloucester militia companies began to muster, led by... Uh, uh, their captains, uh, Captain Joseph 
Foster and Bradbury Sanders. Uh, now, the militia was only armed with muskets and uh, two old small swivel guns. Nonetheless, they opened fire from the shore at the small boats as they were nearing the schooner. Uh, the guys in the boat started rowing as fast as they could, and they boarded the schooner, but it didn't do any good because then they were trapped by constant fire from the shore because they had their row in closer to the shore to get on the ship. Now they were within within easy range of musket fire from the shore. Uh, Captain Lindsay tried to distract the townspeople. He started firing uh, the Falcons' uh, guns on the town, and eventually uh, he mustered up a landing party uh, that he sent ashore, or he tried to send ashore in boats to set the town on fire. But the attempt to gain the shore and burn the town was not successful. Uh, the party on the grounded schooner uh, continued to be harassed by fire from shore. The lieutenant was wounded in the action, and he and a few other of the men managed to escape from the grounded sh- ship in a skiff. About around 4 o'clock, uh, leaving the Falcon's master in charge. <clears throat> the remaining men on the grounded ship were eventually taken prisoner, uh, including the the poor guys who the the Americans who had been impressed by the uh, the British. Now, by 7 o'clock, the small boat that, that night, the small boat had been taken, and Lindsay, Captain Lindsay, decided to send the the schooner he had captured in to recover his men. He was hoping that, uh, you know, under cover of, of dark, he could send in the smaller schooner, grab his men, and take back out. But uh, he was afraid that the crew of the captured ship, the one that was in the harbor, remember the guy, the ten guys that, uh, that were in there, that they had taken the opportunity to overpower the crew he had sent in there. And uh, he decided that he could not do those guys any good or distress the rebels by firing. Therefore, he left. Uh, Lindsay's attempt to burn the town as a punishment for resisting his actions was echoed later in some larger naval actions. Uh, a little bit later in October, Admiral Graves ordered Captain Henry Mollett on an expedition of reprisal against uh, the New England coastal communities, specifically including Gloucester as target. And citing, among other justifications, Captain Lindsay's defeated Gloucester, uh, he, he sent a group of, he sent a force in to attack them in a reprisal fashion. But once he got to Gloucester, he took a look at it and said, well, the buildings were too far apart. Uh, they were too widely spaced for for shelling the town to have much of an effect, and and it wouldn't really do any good to try to set it afire either. But uh, he continued on and ended up at Falmouth, uh, which today is uh, the city of Portland, Maine, and he burned Falmouth. Now, the burning of Falmouth was instrumental 
in motivating the Second Continental Congress, once the Second Continental Congress had met, it motivated them to establish the Continental Navy. Okay? So that was the the Battle of Gloucester, and that was fought uh, between the 5th and the 9th of 1775. Uh, At the end of August, August 30th or so, uh, uh, a frigate, uh, the HMS Rose, commanded by uh, Sir James Wallace, uh, pulled up outside Stonington and shelled Stonington uh, for the better part of a day, or August 30th. Uh, It really had no real effect, and uh, he pulled up anchor and left. Uh, On August... Let me... Okay, hold on. Let me back up just a little bit. That's the... uh, And that is the end of the... the 1775... Battles of uh, of August. All right, now that's going to take us to uh, the Battle of Long Island. Okay, the the actual Battle of Long Island, which later became known as the Battle of Brooklyn, and, and more commonly known as the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, which where the, the majority of the fighting took place. The actual battle was fought on August 27th, 1776. Now, this was the first major battle in the American Revolutionary War after the United States declared its independence. Remember, the independence was declared uh, July 4th, 1776, and was uh, released to the public was you know was told to the public on August sixth, I mean uh, July sixth, seventeen seventy six, and this is the first battle that was fought after the Declaration of Independence. Now, I know a lot of people don't think about it or don't realize it, but for the first year of the war, the war was not being fought as a war of secession or a war to secede from from Britain uh, or a war of independence. It was a war being fought to try and force England to grant the colonists the same rights and privileges held by uh, the citizens of Great Britain in England. We were a colony of England and we simply wanted the same rights and privileges that that our parents our, that our parent nation had our parent country and uh, there were there were certainly folks that thought about it i'm sure there were some folks that talked about it but but not many uh a matter of fact for the first full year uh, over and over again uh there were attempts at uh, at finding peace uh, with the king, uh, all of the attempts were rebuffed. Finally, the United uh, the colonies declared independence. Now, 
after after defeating the British in the siege of Boston on March 17, 1776, General George Washington, whose commander-in-chief brought the Continental Army to defend the strategic port city of New York. Uh, this was then limited to the southern end of Manhattan Island. Now, Washington thought that the city's harbor would provide an excellent base for the British Navy during the campaign, and he wanted to deny this to him. So he established defenses, and he waited for the British to attack. Uh, even though, even though all of the advice uh, from all around him told him this was not a good idea. Remember, New York is an island. And if you're on an island, then the only way on or off the island is by water. Therefore, whoever controls the water controls the island. And at the time, uh, the colonies had no real navy. And England uh, had the largest and most impressive navy in the world. So the idea of uh, of trying to successfully defend uh, an island, especially one as large as New York, uh, without holding command of the water surrounding it, certainly lent itself to the idea that it was going to be a failure. Uh, and Washington had been advised of this, and yet he still thought uh, that it needed to be done, that New York needed to be held. He figured it was going to be the next uh, logical location for attack, and he wanted to try and deny it uh, to England. I'm sure he wanted to to try out his new army, the new Continental Army. And you have to remember that Washington in 1776 was not the same Washington that we see in 1782. There's a very sharp learning curve uh, as a commander. And Washington, up to this point, had really not had that much of a military career. Uh, he had been a member uh, of the British forces uh, during the French and Indian Wars, and uh, and even then did not command any great uh, any great number of troops. And now here he is uh, as the overall commander of a country, and it took him a good while to become confident in his ability to command uh, men in battle. And it took him a good amount of time to understand what advice he should listen to, what he shouldn't, what risk he could take, what risk he couldn't, uh, and become confident to believe in the decisions that he had to make. However, at this time, uh, he didn't make a lot of great decisions. Uh, on uh, In July, the British 
under the command of uh, General Howe, landed uh, just a couple of miles across the harbor on the sparsely populated Staten Island, uh, where over the next month and a half they were slowly reinforced by ships in the, nor- the lower New York Bay, uh, eventually bringing the total British force to 32,000 men. Now, with the British fleet in control of the entrance to the harbor at the Narrows, Washington knew the, the difficulty in holding the city. He thought that Manhattan would be the first target, and he moved the bulk of his forces there. On August 22nd, the British landed on the shores of Gravesend Bay and southeast Kings County. This is uh, right across the Narrows from Staten Island, more than a dozen miles south from the East River, uh, crossing into Manhattan. Now, after five days of waiting, the British began their attack, uh, and they started with the defenses on Guan Heights. Unknown to the Americans, however, Howard brought his main army around their rear and attacked their flank right after that. The Americans, of course, panicked. Uh, although there was a stand by 400 uh, extremely brave Maryland troops which prevented the bulk of the army from being captured, the remainder of the army fled to defenses on Brooklyn Heights. Uh, the Attack at, at, at the end of the day, however, was not pursued. The British dug in for a siege, but on the night of the 29th, Washington evacuated the entire army uh, across the East River to Manhattan without the loss of any material or a single life. <clears throat> Washington and the whole Continental, Continental Army were were very quickly driven out of New York uh, after several more terrible defeats and were forced to retreat through New Jersey all the way into Pennsylvania. <clears throat> well, let's talk about how this happened. Now, we talked a few minutes ago about how uh, the British Army was trapped in Boston. Uh, on March 4th, Washington... Uh, ordered artillery to be placed in Dorchester Heights. And uh, Howe knew then, once he saw the artillery there overlooking the harbor, that he couldn't hold the city. The artillery was manning the heights. Now, it wasn't it wasn't close enough to be a, a disastrous threat, but the larger guns could actually reach the harbor. And the, the ships in harbor were, were not going to be able to fight back. So, since he could not hold the city uh, with the artillery on the heights that would threaten the British fleet, uh, Howe packed up and moved out. Uh, there was some discussion, and he sent a note to Washington letting him know that uh, if his guys were allowed to leave, they would not burn the city and destroy it. So within two weeks, uh, every British soldier and uh, a good number, several thousand loyalists, were packed up on ships, and they sailed out of New York and uh, made landfall in Halifax, Nova Scotia. (laughs) Now, once the British had abandoned Boston, 
Washington began to round up uh, the regiments from the new Continental Army and began to send them pieces to New York City. He believed that that the main British attack would be there because of the strategic importance of New York. Washington left Boston on April 4th, and the Army took a route to Rhode Island and uh, Connecticut. And of course, they, all of the all of the local folks came out. They lined the roads, uh, cheering and giving food and drink to the soldiers. Remember, the the war had not struck home yet. There had been some fighting in Concord and uh, uh, in Lexington on the long battle road back to Boston. Uh, there had been fighting at Bunker Hill. I told you about uh, some of the other fighting that had happened along the coast of New England. But for all intents and purposes, the, the the war had not been brought to the colonies as it would be over the next six years. So the folks were out celebrating, lining the way on the April 5th, the army marched into Providence, and thousands of folks uh, came out and lined the route to see Washington and the army pass. Uh, by April 13th, uh, Washington and his men had made it to New York. Washington took up headquarters uh, in a large home on Broadway and quickly set to work. Washington on Broadway. <laughs> of course, it looked a lot different then than it does now. And they began to try and transform uh, the city into a fortress. Washington sent his second in command, Charles Lee, uh, ahead of him to New York when he left to start begin, begin building the defenses for the city. <clears throat> Lee remained in control of the city's defenses until Congress uh, grabbed him and tasked him to head to South Carolina in March. And uh, the job for preparing the defenses was then transferred to uh, uh, General William Alexander, alternate Lord Sterling. Now, because Lee and Sterling did not have enough troops to to finish the defenses before he left, when Washington arrived, he found that only a, a, a portion of the defenses had actually been completed. Lee figured that if the British commanded the sea, it would it would be impossible to hold the city. So when he began building his defenses, it wasn't to stop the British from landing, because as I said, there was there's no way you can stop a, a force that controls the sea from landing on a large island like that. There's simply no way. We're not without a uh, hundred times the number of forces that Washington had available. So what Lee decided was that he would build his defenses with with the idea that he would force the British to pay with heavy casualties uh, all along the route they would have to take in order to gain any ground for, from the Americans. Lee began building barricades and redoubts established in and around the city, along with a bastion called Fort Sterling, uh, built along Brooklyn Heights. And while in uh, New York in command of the troops, Lee sent out troops to clear Long Island of any loyalists left on the island. 
He was rounding up the loyalist troops. I mean, the loyalists, they weren't troops. They were simply folks who had declared uh, that they were going to remain loyal to the British crown. Uh, he began rounding them up and forcing them off the island. <clears throat> and uh, Washington, once he arrived, he began moving uh, troops to the Brooklyn area in early May. Uh, within a short time, there were there were several thousand men stationed in Brooklyn. Now, on the eastern side of Brooklyn, there were three more forts that Washington began constructing in order to support the, the main line of defense, which is Fort Sterling. That was the, the bastion along Brooklyn Heights. <clears throat> the three forts uh, were named Fort Putnam, uh, which is not the same they're not the same Fort Putnam uh with which is connected to West Point. Fort Green, named for Nathaniel Green, and Fort Box, named for Major Daniel Box. Fort Putnam was the 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 furthest uh defense to the north, with Green slightly to the southwest and Box was uh, a little bit further to the southwest. If you look on the show page, uh, I put a, a a map of the Bronx, of the uh, uh, Brooklyn defenses, of the Long Island defenses on there, and that should be included on there. If you take a look at that, uh, <clears throat> uh, all the forts were surrounded with uh, by large ditches, and they were all connected by lines of entrenchment. So you get from one fort to the other uh, by uh, by entrenchments. The forts had 36 cannons in total, mostly the 18-pounder size, which are not, they're not the biggest, but they're not the smallest either. Fort Defiance well, was also being built uh, right around the same time. This was located uh, even further to the south. This was past Fort Box, uh, near present-day Red Hook. In addition, so these new forts, uh, a mounted battery was established on Governor's Island. Uh, cannons were placed at Fort George, and even more cannons placed uh, at the Whitehall Dock, which was right on the East River. They sunk uh, as many uh, hulks of old ships as they could uh, at strategic locations, trying to present the British from entering the East River and other waterways. That's where you take, they took the older ships and they would uh, purposely sink them uh, so that the, the British fleet could not gain access uh, to the East River. Uh, Congress had authorized Washington uh, to recruit uh, up to 29,000 men, but He'd only had 19,000 when he got to New York. Now, there was almost no discipline in the Army at this time. Remember, this was a brand-new Continental Army. Nobody knew how to be in an Army. None of them had ever been in an Army. Maybe a few of the guys had been in, uh, in, the, in the Army during the French and Indian War uh, 20 years earlier, but for all intents and purposes, Nobody had ever been in an army before. They didn't know how to act. The commanders didn't know how to command. Nobody knew how to keep discipline. 
the the camp's uh, hygiene was absolutely horrific. Uh, simple orders had to be repeated over and over again. Uh, the un, there was the undisciplined firing of muskets in the camp all the time. Guys ruined their flints. They're using their bayonets uh, to dig with and, and cut food and 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 most of them never bothered to even clean their muskets. Uh, the this was really the first time that any large group of guys had ever seen other folks from any of the other colonies. The only time that this was the first time that, that many of the men from the different colonies had ever been around each other. And the, remember, the colonies were not a, a homogenous mixture. Each colony had begun with its own specific uh, rules and laws and uh, its own, the own specific ways to do things and attitudes and, and everything else. And this, uh, throwing all these guys together all at once in such a large amount, uh, ended up causing a, a great deal of conflict. Now, not only was the Army new, but the artillery was new. They they had a fairly decent amount of artillery, thanks to Henry Knox, uh, who had uh, who had taken a great uh, deal of of time and effort to to round up artillery from across the colonies, uh, from captured British forts and any of the states' militias uh, artillery that he could. Uh, that he could get, but there weren't any artillery folks because there had not been a, uh, a standing artillery regiment or a need for one previously. Uh, so Henry Knox persuaded Washington to transfer about 600 men who did not have muskets to begin with. That was another problem with the, the Army at the time. Although he had 19,000 men, he did not have 19,000 muskets to go with these men. Uh, some of the men had axe handles. Some had uh, uh, lances and spears <coughs> or swords or axes, but they didn't all have muskets. Uh, they were trying as as desperately as they could uh, to get uh, muskets for the men, but uh, Knox persuaded Washington to give him about 600 men who didn't have muskets anyway and place them into the beginning of what would become uh, the Continental Artillery. Uh, in early June, Knox and Green took a look at the land at the north end of Manhattan and decided to establish Fort Washington there. Well, fort Washington was going to be able to cover the river. Then another fort, Fort Constitution, later named Fort Lee, was planned for the other side of the Hudson River, right across from Fort Washington. Now, the purpose of these two forts was to be able to stop British troops, troop, troop ships, uh, or British any ship, ships of the line, from sailing up the Hudson River uh, in order to attack uh, New York, the city of New York. On June 28, Washington learned that the British fleet had set sail from Halifax. And on June 9, that uh, the information given to him, said that they were heading for New York. <clears throat> On June 29th, 
signals were sent from men stationed on Staten Island that the British fleet had appeared. Within a few hours, 45 British ships dropped anchor in lower New York Bay. 45 ships all at once. They said the ship just kept appearing and kept appearing. Everybody in the city stopped everything that they were doing. They began to line the uh, uh, the waterfront. Uh, they were watching over the tops of buildings. The, the city was going into a panic. Now, it finally settled down because the ships weren't attacking. They were simply beginning their formation. Now, within less than a week, there ended up being over 130 ships at anchor right off Staten Island under the command of Richard Howe. That was their brother of uh, General Howe. <clears throat> the whole population of New York when it just went into a panic as soon as they saw the British ships. Alarms went off uh, all over the island. Troops immediately began rushing to their posts. Uh, however, the the British were not attacking, uh, but by July 2nd, the British troops began uh, to land the the British ships began to land the troops uh, on Staten Island. The uh, the few Continental regulars on the island took a few pot shots at the British uh, before immediately fleeing back across the river, and the citizens' militia, the folks that lived there on Staten Island, immediately switched over to the British side. <laughs> okay, we're with you guys now. <clears throat> on July 6th, news ended up reaching uh, Washington and New York that Congress had voted for independence four days earlier. So Congress had voted for independence on the 2nd. They had announced it on the 4th. By the 6th, it reached New York City on July 9th at 6 o'clock in the evening. Uh, Washington had several of his brigades march onto the commons of the city to hear the Declaration of Independence read aloud. At the end of the reading of the Declaration, there was a huge mob that ran all the way down to Bowling Green, and there, there was a statue of uh, George III. They took ropes, tied the ropes and bars uh, onto the statue, and tore down the lead statue of George III on a horse. He was sitting on a horse. It was gilded in gold, but uh, the statue, of course, was made of lead. The crowd, in their fury cut off George's head, chopped off the nose, and they mounted what remained of the head on a spike outside a tavern. The rest of the statue was dragged all the way to Connecticut, and uh, there they chopped it up, melted it down into musket balls. On July 12th, the two British ships the Phoenix and the Rose sailed up the harbor toward the mouth of the Hudson. Now, the American batteries that, uh, that Knox had placed at Fort George, uh, Red Hook, and Governor's Island opened fire. Uh, the British returned fire into the city of New York. 
The ships sailed along the Jersey Shore, continued up the Hudson, sailing past Fort Washington, and arriving by nightfall at Terrytown, which is uh, on the widest part of the Hudson's there. The goal of the British ships was to cut off American supplies and encourage loyalist support. The only casualties of the day, even though there had been uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, artillery rounds fired, the only casualties were six Americans who were killed when, they, when their own cannon blew up for an unknown reason. <laughs> now, this this should have this should have ended Washington's whole idea of defending New York. He was defending New York based on the idea that the the American batteries at Fort George, Red Hook, Governor's Island, uh, Fort Washington, and Fort Lee were going to be able to deny the Hudson to the British. And on this day, the two ships, they sailed all the way up and all the way back without any problems whatsoever. That should have been his signal right then and there, that he was not going to be able to do anything to prevent the British from commanding the water and therefore making landfall anywhere they wanted and putting the continental forces at great peril from being cut off, surrounded, and captured on the island. The next day, on July 13th, General Howe uh, attempted to open negotiations with the Americans. Howe sent a, a, a letter to Washington uh, delivered by Lieutenant Philip Brown, who arrived under the flag of truce. The letter was addressed, George Washington, Esquire. Brown was met by Joseph Reed, who, on Washington's orders, had hurried to the waterfront accompanied by Henry Knox and Samuel Webb. Washington, once once the letter had been delivered, Washington asked his officers whether they thought it should be received or not because it did not recognize his rank as general. And his whole staff unanimously said no. Washington uh, and everybody else immediately saw what what Howe was was doing. He was not recognizing. Uh, not only was he not recognizing Washington as commander of of the uh, continental forces, uh, but he was not recognizing the validity of the American forces at all. So by sending his letter addressed that way, George Washington Esquire, he was trying to get around it. Uh, Brown was end up being told by, by Washington Secretary Reed that there was no one in the Army with that address. On the 16th of July, three years later, Howe tried it again. This time he addressed it, George Washington, Esquire, etc., etc. Uh, and he was hoping that this would cover all of the bases. That uh, that by saying etc., etc., then then by all means that meant that that he was addressing uh, any and all titles or ranks that Washington might be using. Uh, but 
Washington, uh, Washington wasn't going to have that. Uh, and again, the the letter was declined. Now, the next day, on the 17th, House sent uh, Captain Nisbeth Balfour to ask if Washington would please meet with House adjutant face-to-face. And a meeting was scheduled for July 20th. House adjutant was Colonel James Patterson. Patterson told Washington that Howe had come with powers to grant pardons to Washington and the men under his command. Washington's answer to Colonel Patterson was, those who have committed no fault want no pardon. Patterson departed soon afterward. Now, Washington's performance during the meeting was praised throughout the United States. Now, what I mean by performance was it uh, the British army, the British forces, the British royalty, all stood uh, stood like a long tradition of uh, of ceremony and process, and they. I'm sure that they were they didn't expect for Washington and the Continental Forces to do the same. However, Washington conducted himself uh with all of the uh the grace and professionalism uh that the highest ranking British general would have. And that's how he treated Colonel Patterson. He, the, they made sure that whenever the meeting was held, everything was set up perfectly. They, they were, took great pains to set up the room perfectly, to have the the escorts who brought Patterson to the meeting uh, were specifically uh, uh, handpicked and trusted. All the uniforms were impeccable. The all the ceremonies were observed. Everything was done uh, exactly as it would have been. Had Washington been the commander of uh, some other European nation's army with hundreds of years of history. That's what the whole idea was. That's what the whole purpose was. <clears throat> to let the, the the British forces, especially General Howe, know that this wasn't some uh, fly-by-night thing. This wasn't some... Uh, this wasn't going to go away. <clears throat> Meanwhile, uh, during the the peace negotiations, British ships continued to arrive. Uh, by the 1st of August, 45 additional ships with uh, the addition of uh, the Generals Henry Clinton and General Charles Cornwallis arrived along with 3,000 uh, additional troops. By August 12th, 3,000 British troops and another 8,000 Hessians had arrived. Uh, at this point, the British fleet sitting there uh, offshore of New York uh, numbered well over 400 ships, including 73 uh, ships of war and 32,000 troops. Uh, who now camped on Staten Island. 
faced with this large force. Washington was was unsure as where the British would attack. Now, both Green and Reed thought that a British would attack on Long Island, but Washington felt that a British attack on Long Island might be a diversion for a main attack on Manhattan. So Washington ended up bringing his army in half, took half of it to Manhattan, the other half he stationed on Long Island. The army on Long Island was commanded by uh, Green. And by the August, by the 20th of August, Green became uh, very seriously ill and was forced to move to a house in Manhattan uh, where he where he remained bedridden until he was able to recover. John Sullivan uh, instead was placed in command until Green was well enough to resume uh, his command of his portion of the army. Finally. Uh, at uh, right around 5:10 a.m. on August the 22nd, there was an advance guard of uh, right around 4,000 British troops under the command of Clinton and Cornwallis that left Staten Island to land on Long Island. Uh, by 8 a.m., all 4,000 troops had landed on the shore of Gravesend Bay unopposed. Colonel Edward Hand's Pennsylvania riflemen had been stationed on the shore, but they did not oppose the landings and fell back, killing cattle and burning farmhouses on the way. It was a kind of a scorched earth type uh, retreat. By noon, 15,000 troops had landed uh, ashore along with uh, 40 pieces of artillery. Hundreds and hundreds of loyalists came to greet the British troops. Cornwallis pushed on ahead with the advance guard, uh, advancing over six miles on the island and finally establishing uh, a camp at the village of Flatbush. I've always thought that was a was a uh, just a, a novel sounding town in in New York. At the time, it was just a village. <clears throat> uh, Cornwallis then gave orders to advance no further at that time at that point. <clears throat> Washington received word of the landings the same day that they occurred, but was informed that the number was 8,000 to 9,000 troops. Now, that's that's over half as much as what actually landed. This convinced Washington that the, the, the landing at Grazing Bay was the feint that he had actually predicted was going to be, and so he only sent uh, 1,500 additional troops to Brooklyn, bringing the total number of troops on Long Island to 6,000. On August 24th, Washington replaced Sullivan, who was who had taken command when, when Green was ill. Washington replaced Sullivan with uh, Israel Putnam, uh, who now commanded the troops on Long Island. Putnam arrived on Long Island the next day, along with six additional battalions. Also that day, the British troops on Long Island received an additional 5,000 Hessian reinforcements, bringing their total to 20,000. Now, although there was there was very little fighting on the days after the landing, there were some small skirmishes that did take place with American marksmen uh, armed with rifles, Pushing off British troops from distance uh, yeah, quite a bit.
so when we talk about the the events of April 1975, there being no known rifles involved uh, in the events of April 1975, the by the time that the Battle of Brooklyn rolled around. There were a good many uh, troops armed with rifled muskets, and they were using these uh, to great advantage uh, to shoot British troops from distance. Now, the American plan was that Putnam would uh, direct the overall defenses there on Brooklyn Heights, while Sullivan and Sterling and their troops would be stationed uh, along Juan Heights. Now, the heights were they were about 150 feet high, and they blo- they blocked the, the most direct route to Brooklyn Heights. So there was no good way that the British troops were going to get to Brooklyn Heights with Juan uh, with Heights and Brooklyn Heights being manned and defended. Now, Washington believed... That by stationing them on the heights, that very heavy casualties could be inflicted on the British uh, before the troops fell back to the main defenses at the Brooklyn Heights. There were three main passes through the heights. There was the Gowanus Road, which was the furthest route to the west. The Flatbush Road, which was a little bit further to the east, and then in the center of the American line, where where everyone fully expected the British would make their main attack was the Bedford Road, which was the farthest road to the east. Sterling was responsible to defend the Gowanus Road with 500 men. Sullivan was to defend the Flatbush and Bedford Roads uh, with 1,800 men, respectively. I mean, you may think that this doesn't sound right with uh, 500 men defending a road against uh, 20,000. But if you look at the the terrain there, what it is is you you have the you have a ridge that's 150 feet high, 15 stories high. There's no way to get through it except for these three small passes, and the passes were very narrow. So so you could even if you had a force of 20,000 men, you're only going to to be able to have a few men at a time in the front lines of the road. So 500 men defending uh, the the pass that was least expected to be used, and then 1,800 men defending the additional passes was a a pretty decent uh, defensive maneuver. 6,000 of the troops, of the Continental troops, would remain behind at Brooklyn Heights. Now, there was another lesser-known pass through the Heights that was well farther to the east called the Jamaica Pass. Now, this pass was defended by just five militia officers on horses. The the thought was that no one was going to use that pass. It was way too far to be effectively used for the attack. On the British side, General Clinton learned about Jamaica Pass from the local loyalists. Uh, And he knew from the information he received, that the pass was virtually undefended. So Clinton drew up a plan, and he gave it to William Erskine to propose to Howe. Clinton, Clinton and Howe did not get along, and 
Clinton didn't, he did not think that Howe, if he proposed a plan directly to Howe, that Howe wouldn't accept it. So he gave it to Erskine. He formed up a plan. He gave it to Erskine and asked Erskine to propose the plan of attack through Jamaica Pass to Howe. And uh, Clinton's plan used the main bulk of the army to make an all-night march, make an end run down to Jamaica Pass, go through the pass, and then turn the American flank while the other troops, including the uh, German-Hessian troops, kept the Americans locked by the nose and kept them busy on the front. On the 26th of August, Clinton received word from Howe that the plan that he devised would be used and that Clinton was to command the advance guard of the main army of 10,000 men that would end up making the end run down through Jamaica Pass. While they made the night march, General James Grant's British troops, along with some of the Hessians, about 4,000 men, would attack the Americans from the front uh, at the position that they were most expected to attack in order to distract the enemy, to distract the Continentals from the main army that was going to be arriving uh, with surprise on their flank. They told Clinton to be ready to move out that very night on the 26th. Uh, by 9 o'clock that evening, the British were moving out. No one uh, except the commanders, not even not even the officers, knew of the plan. Uh, Clinton led a crack brigade of light infantry with six men up to the front, followed by Cornwallis, who had uh, eight battalions and 18, ar- and 18 artillery pieces. Cornwallis was followed by Howe and Hugh Percy, with an additional six battalions, more artillery, and then the Army's baggage. The column consisted of 10,000 men who stretched out over two miles. Three loyalist farmers led the column toward the Jamaica Pass. The British had left their campfires burning in order to deceive the Americans into thinking that nothing was going on. They left all their fires burning. They left a few men to to tend the fires, keep them burning bright, to bang things around, to yell to each other, things like that. And they were making their night march. Now, the column didn't run into into any American troops. Uh, And finally, they reached Howard's Tavern, and I believe at the time it was also known as... uh, it's Howard's Halfway House, I believe. This was just a, a couple of hundred yards from Jamaica Pass. The tavern keeper, William Howard, and his son, William Jr., were forced to act as guides to show the British the way to the Rockaway footpath. This was an old Indian trail that skirted the Jamaica Pass to the west. Uh, today, if you went to look for it, it would be it would be right in the middle of the cemetery of the Evergreens. Now, five minutes after leaving the tavern, the five American militia officers who were stationed at the pass uh, to guard the pass were captured without firing a shot. They rode up to the British troops who they thought were Americans. And this is, you remember, this is in the middle of the night. They don't expect any British, British troops here. They rode up to them, and they were immediately captured. Clinton interrogated the men. And they told him that they were the only troops that were guarding the pass. 
By dawn, the British were through the pass and stopped so that the troops could rest. By 9 a.m., they fired two heavy cannons to signal the, the Hessian troops who were below the pass to begin their frontal assault against Sullivan's men who were deployed on the two hills flanking the pass while Clinton's troops simultaneously flanked the American positions from the east. <clears throat> now, uh, there's a footnote I wanted to tell you about because uh, a lot of the history can get dry about things that are going on, but and yet, and yet there are thousands and thousands of individual stories for every main story that you hear. Uh, William Howard, Howard Jr. was the son of uh, the tavern keeper William Howard. These were the the guy and his father who were who lived in the tavern right there at Jamaica Pass. And he describes that night. He said it was about 2 o'clock in the morning of the 27th of August that uh, he was awakened just by seeing a soldier standing at the side of his bed. He said he got up and dressed and went down to the bar room where he saw his father standing in one corner with three British soldiers before him with muskets and bayonets fixed. The army was then lying in the field in front of the house. General Howe and another officer were in the bar room. Uh, General Howe wore a camlet cloak over his regimental uniform. After asking for a glass of liquor from the bar, which was given him, he entered into familiar conversation with, uh, with William Howe Jr.'s father and, among other things, said, I must have some one of you to show me over the rockaway path around the pass. To which his father replied, We belong to the other side, General, and we cannot serve you against our duty. General Howe replied to Howard's father, That is all right. That's fine. Stick to your country or stick to your principles. That's fine. But, Howard, you are my prisoner and must guide my men over the hill. Uh, Howard's father made some further objections, but was silenced by the general who held up his hand and said, You have no alternative. If you refuse, I shall shoot you through the head. That's how William Howard and William Howard Jr. ended up as Howe's guides uh, around Rockaway Pass. <clears throat> around 11 p.m. on the 26th, of 1776. The first shots of the Battle of Long Island were fired near the Red Lion Inn. Now, that's their present day location, which would be uh, the uh, intersection of 39th Street and 4th Avenue in Brooklyn, uh, or Long Island. And uh, this was done, uh, the first shots were fired because the American pickets, uh, part of uh, John Atlee's Pennsylvania Regiment, ended up shooting at two British soldiers who were trying to to gather some watermelons from a watermelon patch near the Red Line Inn. This was at 11 at night. So that's kind of when the, the first shots between the two sides uh, began. Around 1 a.m. on the morning of the 27th, uh, the British approached the vicinity of the Red Line in uh, with between uh, two to three hundred British troops. 
the American troops fired on the British, and after uh, about two full uh, uh, two full shots by the American troops, they took off uh, in flight up Gowanus Road toward the old uh, Kelly Courthouse. Uh, Major Edward Byrd, who had been in command uh, of those troops, were captured along with a lieutenant and 15 other privates. Now, the first engagement was fought in the vicinity of the current vicinity of the 38th, 39th streets between 2nd and 3rd uh, Avenues. Uh, newly promoted Brigadier General Samuel Holden Parsons, this guy, this is a lawyer from Connecticut, uh, who just recently managed to secure a, a commission in the Continental Army, and Colonel Samuel Attlee, who was in command of the 1st Regiment of the Pennsylvania Musketry, uh, and he was a veteran of the French and Indian War. He was stationed further north on the Gowanus Road. Putnam uh, had been awakened by a guard at 3 a.m., uh, and he was told that the British were attacking through Gowanus Pass. Putnam lit signals to Washington, who was on Manhattan, and then rode south to Warren, Warren Sterling of the attack. <clears throat> you know, one thing that I remind you of is that when when you hear about the, the recounting of battles, then uh, at this time that <clears throat> it, it sounds awfully confusing, and you also wonder why things don't happen sooner and why there is so much confusion. And <clears throat> you have to remember that. Uh, uh, that every, there, was, there was no electricity, there were no radios, uh, there was no way to signal over great distances. Uh, and whenever somebody uh, is told that uh, someone's attacking, their, that they believe someone's attacking the Gowanus Pass, then even for, the, even for Putnam to say, no, are you sure? He can't get an answer sometimes, perhaps for hours. You have to send a writer back to to to, to get more information, and that writer has to return if he doesn't get lost or captured. And and things move very slowly and and very haltingly and and very confusingly uh, during the course of a battle, especially when you don't have line of sight. Uh, Sterling along with the Delaware and Maryland regiments, ended up taking positions just north of Atlee's men uh, on the slopes of a rise of land there forward of Gowanus Pass. Some of the Maryland troops were positioned on a small hill. Uh, at the base of this hill, the Gowanus Road crossed a small bridge over a drainage ditch, which drained into a marshy uh, area, to a kind of a swamp. When the British advanced up the Gowanus Road, the American troops fired on them from, from, from positions on the north side of the ditch. To their left were Colonel Peters' Pennsylvania Regiment. Just to the southwest uh, were a few hills. Amongst them was a hill, which is the, the, the highest point in Kings County, which is 220 feet high and can't be known as Battle Hill. Uh, the British attempted to outflank the American positions by taking the hill. The Americans, trying to prevent the British move, also sent troops under Parsons and Atlee to take the hill. The British got there first, but the Americans were able to dislodge them in fierce fighting, including hand-to-hand fighting. Uh, Battle Hill was a site of, of some really 
brutal fighting with the Americans at, at this point inflicting the highest number of casualties against their British troops during the entire Battle of Long Island. Among those killed was uh, British Colonel James Grant, uh, which led the Americans to mistakenly believe they had killed General James Grant uh, by the same name, just a little bit higher rank. He supposedly he'd been shot by a Pennsylvania rifleman who had been sniping at the British from up in a tree. Uh, <clears throat> due to the ferocity of this fighting, the fighting that began there, and the number of the British troops engaged, the, the Americans were still unaware that this was not the main British attack. Like I said, the uh, battlefield can get awfully confusing, uh, especially if you do not have good sight of the battlefield, you don't have good communications. Once any large body of soldiers begin firing, if you have uh, two to 300 men facing two to 300 men firing, you have immediate smoke screens that are created by the black powder. Uh, At this same time, the Hessians, who were in the center, and they were in the, under the command of General John uh, uh, Heiser, began to cannonade the American lines. They were stationed at Battle Pass under the command of General Sullivan. The Hessian brigades were waiting for the prearranged signal from the British, who at that time were in the process of outflanking the American lines, but they were not attacking yet. The Americans still under the assumption that Grant's attack straight up Gowanus Road was the main thrust, uh, had Sullivan send 400 additional men to reinforce Sterling. So they're still sending men to the center of their position along Gowanus Height, I mean, uh, Gowanus Pass Road. And what they don't realize is that the main body is beginning to form upon their flank. By 9 a.m., Washington arrives uh, from Manhattan. Now, Washington realized he'd been wrong about the faint on Long Island, and he ordered more troops to Brooklyn from Manhattan. Washington's location on Babylon really isn't known for sure because because there are, there are different accounts of where where he was running the battle from, but more than likely, he was somewhere near Brooklyn Heights where he could where you could have a better view of the battle. Like I said, you need to be able to see the, the battlefield in, under, in order to understand it and, and to make decisions. <clears throat> now, on the American right to the west, Sterling still held his line against Grant. Sterling had, held on for four hours. Uh, he was still unaware of the British flank, flanking maneuver and some of his own streets actually thought they were winning the day because the the British facing them had been unable to take their position. Uh, sadly for them, what they didn't understand is they weren't trying to take the position. They thought they were just they were holding, they were fiercely fighting and holding the front. What they didn't realize is that the forces facing them weren't trying to take their position. They were mainly trying to keep them pinned down and. Uh, make them think that the attack was coming there while they were being flanked. However, by 11 a.m., Grant, who now is being reinforced by uh, about 2,000 Royal Marines, hit Sterling's center, and Sterling was attacked on his left 
by the Hessians at the same point. So they pulled back, but the, but the British troops at this point were coming at him in his rear uh, down the Gowanus Road. The only escape route he had left was across the mill pond on Gowanus Creek, which was about 80 yards wide. On the other side was uh, Brooklyn Heights. Now, the mill pond, like I said, was about 80 yards wide, and it was surrounded by a swamp and bog. While making while while trying to make the retreat, and Sterling ordered all the troops except for a a small contingent of about 400 other Marylanders uh, under the command of Mordecai Gist to take off, to to head across the creek creek to get out of there. Now, the group of Maryland troops who became known uh, in history as the Maryland 400, although they actually numbered about between 215 and 270 men, uh, Sterling and Jess led the troops in a rearguard action against the British troops, which which numbered well over 2,000 Men supported by two cannons. You have the 250 Marylanders who are, are locked down and they are fighting to the last man. They're fighting like ferocious uh, dogs against 10 times their number. And they, they, they were fighting them to a stop. They were, the, the 250 Marylanders were fighting the 2,000 uh, uh, light infantry and Royal Marines to a stop allowing uh, Sterling to uh, to send the rest of the troops across G- Gowanus Creek. <clears throat> uh, Sterling ordered them across, but Sterling and just led the Marylanders in two attacks against the British, who were in six positions in front uh, of the courthouse. To, today it's known as the Old Stone House. If you go there and take a look at it, at the battlefield of the Old Stone House. After the last assault, the the few troops that were left tried to retreat across Gowanus Creek. Some of the men who tried to cross were ended up being bogged down in the mud and and being stuck in the mud like up to their knees and were cut down. Uh, others who couldn't swim, you know, they waded out as far as they could, but they couldn't swim, so they didn't wade any further. They were captured. Sterling was surrounded, and Unwilling to surrender to the British uh, with his sword and, and pistols, he broke through the British lines, fighting like a madman, broke through the British lines to von Hester's uh, Hessian troops, the German troops, and surrendered to them. He fought his way through one group of enemy, the, the, the English troops, so he could surrender to the German troops. 256 of the Marylanders were killed in the assaults in front of the old old stone house. Less than a dozen of the Maryland 400 ever made it back to American lines. Washington was watching them from a defensive position uh, nearby on Copple Hill. And uh, that is today, that's at the intersection of Court Street and Atlantic Avenue. He's said to have turned to his aides and said, good God, what brave fellows I must this day lose. <clears throat> As the American troops who weren't killed or captured uh, escaped behind the American fortified positions centered on Brooklyn Heights, how, in a move considered uh, controversial to this day, ordered all of his troops to halt the attack, despite 
the protest of a great many of the officers uh, in his command who said th- they should push on. They should uh, exploit the attack, push on to the heights, and capture Washington's army then and there. Howe decided, however, against a direct frontal assault against the uh, entrenched American positions on the heights. Remember, this was uh, this was within a year of the Bunker Hill disaster. Uh, it's believed that Howe did not want that repeated. <clears throat> Instead, uh, he ordered uh, the troops to encircle and begin setting up a siege and uh, setting up positions for siege around the American positions. And he believed them to be trapped because his troops were blocking escape completely by land. The Royal Navy was in control of the East River, which would have to be crossed if they were going to reach any other land. The Americans had their their backs against the East River. Washington and his whole army were surrounded on Brooklyn Heights with the East River to their backs. No way to get off. As the day went on, the British began to do dig trenches, you know, slowly digging their way closer and closer to the Americans. They were kept from moving straight out by uh, by many of the uh, American riflemen. They were having to dig defensive trenches to get in close. Now, by doing this, the British wouldn't have to cross over the open ground to assault the American defenses, as they had done in uh, Boston, the year before that I was talking about on, uh, on Bunker Hill. Now, despite the perilous position they were in, Washington ordered uh, an additional 1,200 men to be brought over from Manhattan to Brooklyn. Uh, the men that came over were two Pennsylvania regiments, along with uh, Colonel John Glover's regiment from Marblehead, Massachusetts. These are the Marblehead, uh, the rough seamen. Now, in command of the Pennsylvania troops was Thomas Mifflin, who, after arriving, he volunteered to inspect the outer defenses and report back to Washington. Now, in the outer defenses, the small skirmishes were still taking place. There was still there was still fighting going on on a bit, but there were no major pitch battles uh, being fought. On the afternoon of the 28th, it began to rain, and Washington had his cannon all up and down the line. Uh, continue to bombard the British well into the night. As the rain continued, Washington sent a letter to uh, to General William Heath, who was down at Kingsbridge, uh, between Manhattan and what's now the Bronx, to send every single flat-bottom boat or sloop without delay in case battalions of infantry from New Jersey might need to come to be to reinforce their position. at 4 p.m. on the 29th, Washington had a meeting with the generals. Mifflin advised Washington to retreat to Manhattan, while Mifflin and his Pennsylvania regiments made up the rear guard, holding the line until the rest of the army had withdrawn. The generals uh, unanimously agreed with Mifflin that retreat was the best option, and Washington had orders to go out by the evening. <coughs> now, what uh, most of the folks didn't know was that when Washington had sent out his his initial letter to to Heath uh, to bring the flat bottom bottom boats 
uh, or any other any other boats or sloops within within distance to uh, uh, to be sent to him, so that he could bring other troops over. Uh, he he certainly did not have the idea of bringing additional troops over, but that is what he wanted to make sure was known in case in case word of what he was doing was discovered. In addition to this, his orders to the troops was they were told that they were to gather up all of their gear, all their ammunition, all their baggage, uh, everything they had to prepare for a night attack against the British uh, lines. Uh, by 9 o'clock, the second wounded began to move to the Brooklyn Ferry in preparation for the for being evacuated across the East River. By 11, Glover and his Massachusetts troops, who were sailors and fishermen, began to evacuate the troops. Now, this was a very difficult job. Uh, if you haven't seen the East River, then you, you don't understand the, the full consequences of this. The East River isn't a creek. It's, uh, it's miles across. Anyway, they began to ferry all of the troops there back across the lines. As the troops were being evacuated, more and more troops were being uh, taken off the line, being told to, that they were being uh, reformed for a night attack. But in reality, they were being marched to the ferry landing and ferried across the river, across the East River. Wagon wheels were bound up with, uh, with anything they could use to muffle the sound of them. The men were forbidden to talk. Uh, Mifflin's men were doing the same thing that Howe's were. Uh, they set up uh, campfires. They were tending the fires, uh, a, a few men on the front line tending the fires, banging picks and shovels. Uh, Mifflin, uh, rear guard, <laughs> was tending the campfires, but at 4 a.m. on the 30th, uh, a runner had been sent to Mifflin telling him that his, it was his unit's turn to evacuate. Uh, Mifflin told the man who had been sent to order to, to leave, uh, Major Alexander, that he must be mistaken. But uh, Alexander told him that that he wasn't, and it was a, it was a true order, and that Washington wanted him to leave now. So Mifflin ran up his troops, took off. When Mifflin was in a half mile of the ferry landing, Washington rode up to him and and was absolutely furious and was demanding to know why he was there, why they weren't back there at the at the at the lines, uh, at their defenses, uh, and and Mifflin tried to explain it to him. Uh, and Washington was was completely sad, and he was, they said he was yelling, "Good, good God, General Mifflin, you've ruined us, you've destroyed us." Now Mifflin explained that what he'd been told and who he'd been told it to him, that, and Washington explained to him it had been a mistake and asked him to take his troops back to the defenses and uh, uh, redeploy his men there. And I'm sure that wasn't a happy order, but, but Mifflin followed it. Artillery, supplies, troops, all were being evacuated across the river, but it was not going as fast as Washington had hoped. And all too soon, daybreak came. But at the same time as daybreak came, a fog settled in a thick, heavy fog and completely concealed the evacuation from the British. 
Now, British Patrol noticed that there did not seem to be any American tickets and began searching the area. And while they were doing this, Washington, General Washington, who was the last man left, stepped onto the last boat leaving. And at 7 a.m., began moving across the East River to Manhattan. And uh, the British patrols uh, who were searching line actually actually witnessed this. All 9,000 troops had been evacuated without a single life loss and with all materials of warfare taken in whole. The British were absolutely stunned to find that Washington and the Army had escaped. The next day, on August 30th, the British troops occupied the American fortification. Now, when news of the battle reached London, uh, it caused uh, festivities all across the country. Bells were rung in all of the uh, in all of London's churches. Candles were lit in all the windows. Uh, King George III gave General Howe. He awarded him the Order of the Bath. Washington's defeat revealed his deficiencies as a strategist when he put his forces. His inexperienced generals uh, who misunderstood the situation, his raw troops that fled in disorder at the first shots. However, on the other hand of this, on the other side of this, is daring nighttime retreat across the river uh, has been described by a number of historians as one of his greatest military feats. Uh, he was able to save the bulk of the Continental Army in order for it to continue fighting. Now, General Howe remained inactive for about the next month. Uh, he didn't begin attacking again until around September 15th when he landed at Kipps Bay, the British quickly occupied the city, and on the by the 21st of September, uh, they had occupied uh, all of New York. Now, there was a fire, a mysterious fire that uh, was started that destroyed over a quarter uh, of New York. Uh, now, Washington, of course, wanted to burn New York before he left. And uh, he was just, he saw no no reason whatsoever that he should have left the city standing for the British to occupy. The, the majority of the citizens of New York City were loyalists. Uh, the majority, over 90% of the citizens of New York were, no, were loyalists, loyal to King George and the English. Uh, but he was denied uh, permission to burn the city. Uh, However, uh, somebody went in and did it, and there were a good many of folks executed in the aftermath of the fire, including Nathan Hill, who was uh, was captured uh, during the roundup of spies uh, and other suspicious folks after the fire. He was rounded up and executed then. Uh, although the Continentals were able to mount uh, 
a victory, victory at Harlem Heights in mid-September. How defeated Washington in battle uh, again and again after that? White Plains, uh, again at Fort Washington. Uh, he took Fort Lee, not in battle, but he took it uh, with uh, within minutes of the last person leaving the fort. With, a, with all of the goods still left in the fort, at the at the time that the Battle of Brooklyn was fought, it was by far the largest battle ever fought in North America. If the Royal Navy is included in the battle, and there's no reason they shouldn't be, because they were they were there at sea in the rivers surrounding New York. Uh, over forty thousand men took part in the battle. Howe reported uh, his losses as fifty nine killed, two hundred sixty eight wounded, and thirty one missing. Uh, the heavy casualties, which are the the German mercenaries were reported to be five killed and 26 wounded. The Americans suffered much heavier losses. Uh, around 300 had been killed, uh, a great number, uh, maybe twice that wounded, and then 1,000 captured. Uh, this is, this was a serious, a very serious uh, battle in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, certainly it was a victory for the British and a defeat for the Continentals. But the amount of lessons learned in the Battle of Brooklyn and the follow-on battles of uh, Fort Washington, uh, Lee, uh, uh, and uh, uh Uh, White Plains, uh, Harlem Heights, uh, these all occurred uh, in rapid succession, and the lessons learned from these uh, enabled Washington, who while at the time he uh, he had quite a few shortcomings, he, if he was not a man who did not learn. He learned from these battles, and with those lessons that he learned, he very rapidly uh, began to emerge as the military commander that was needed by the nation. Uh, certainly, there were there were many battles afterwards, but uh, Washington and the Continental forces uh, were driven further westward until they were forced out of. New York, then out of New Jersey, and finally pushed across uh, the Delaware. But by the winter, uh, by winter's onset, they'd been pushed across the Delaware. But we know that that at the very end of the year, uh, the end of December, and by New Year's Day, the tides began to uh, to turn with Washington recrossing the Delaware, attacking Trenton and Princeton, being victorious in those battles, which, which turned the tide of the war. So uh, so that is, the, that is the story of the Battle of... Brooklyn Heights, the Battle of Long Island. And uh, 
We've got uh, a few more minutes left. Let me see. I want to. Uh, I want uh, Mr. Martinez, if he's listening, I want him to call in. And uh, or doing that, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of the additional battles uh, that were running in August. Uh, we talked about the Battle of Gloucester. Uh, the shelling of Stonington, the Battle of Long Island, the siege of Fort Stanwix. Now, that began uh, August 2nd, 1777. <clears throat> that began a, a year later, a year after the Battle of Long Island. Now, I've talked to you guys. I'm not going to go into this. As much as I would like to, I'm not going to go into this because uh, I've done it over and over. I've talked to you guys about the siege of Fort Stanwix and the Battle of Oriskany. Uh these were also two watershed battles because these two battles uh, destroyed one of the three prongs uh, of an attack uh, into uh, New York, into the Hudson Valley, uh, which, which was designed to separate the colonies. And the Battle of Oriskany can't be considered uh, an American victory We do know that it was instrumental in in destroying the third prong of the attack and thereby limiting the damage that was able to be done uh, by that prong of the attack. <clears throat> These were the uh, the two close battles of Stanwix and the Battle of Oriskany. Now, you know the Stanwix set on the trade route, the waterway, from the New England coast into the Great Lakes. Uh, if you wanted to to do any trading, any movement of anything, it had to be done by water. There were no roads at the time. And Fort Stanwix set on the portage point uh, at the at the uh, from the uh, from the waterway into the Great Lakes and controlled that. So that was a very important. Uh, position. Uh, the Battle of Bennington, August 16th, 1777. Uh, the Battle of Staten Island, August 22nd, 1777. Uh, the Battle of Sea Toppet, August 22nd. Uh, the Siege of Pondicherry, August 1778. Uh, now, just a note about this. The siege of Pondicherry was the first military action during the war on the Indian subcontinent following the declaration of war between uh, Great Britain and France. Once, the, once France had come in on the side of the colonists, then then the war between France and Great Britain, Great Britain was reignited, <clears throat> and this portion of their war was being fought in Pondicherry, India. <clears throat> so the the war was not uh, it was not being fought only in the Americas; it was fought uh, all over the world. Battle of Rhode Island, August 29, seventeen seventy eight. Now, a word about this battle. Uh, it was also known as the Battle of Quaker Hill and, and also known as the Siege of Newport. 
This took place on August 29, 1778. The Continental Army and uh, additionally connected that were military forces uh, under the command of uh, General Sullivan were withdrawn to the northern part of Aquidneck Island after abandoning the siege of Newport, Rhode Island, when the British forces in Newport sorted out, uh, supported by the recently arrived Navy ships, and attacked the retreating Americans. The battle ended inconclusively. There were no real winners or anything, but the Continental forces afterwards withdrew to the mainland, leaving uh, Aquidneck Island in the British hands. Now, the battle took place in the aftermath of the first attempt at cooperation between the French and American forces following uh, France's entry into the war as an American ally. This was the first the first battle once the Americans and French had gotten together. <clears throat> the operations against Newport were to have been made in conjunction with the French fleet arriving in troops. And these were the, the battle plans were frustrated in part by difficult relations between the commanders. You had the American commanders and the French commanders, and they, early on, they were not able to to, to get along that well. I'm sure that uh, the Continental commanders did not want to be considered uh, amateurs or, uh, or less than equal to the French, and the French did not want to to, to make the, uh, the Continentals think that they were certainly that they could never be equal to the great French uh, army and troops. This caused difficulty quite a bit during the early stages of the uh, the American and French alliance. Now, I want to make another point uh, that was notable about this battle. Uh, this, the battle is, was fairly notable because of the participation of the 1st Rhode Island Regiment. This was a locally recruited regiment of African Americans. Uh, it was a segregated regiment, meaning it was an all-black regiment. And that is a, a large body uh, uh, I'm not sure what the, what this regiment size was, but it could be uh, uh, six to seven hundred men. It's the only major military action that included a racially segregated unit on the American side of the war. But here we have the first uh, case of a of an all black uh, unit fighting for independence uh, in the American Revolutionary War. And uh, I think that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, all right, we've got about four minutes, uh, and uh, for those four minutes, I just want to uh, say that we have. Uh, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening tonight. I hope that I hope that the information was uh, of use to you. Uh, like I said, I, I love reading about the American Revolutionary War. I love talking about it. Uh, I love answering questions that you guys didn't call in and ask. And uh, I uh, I really enjoy uh, the history. Uh, but I also want to let you know that uh, the way that I pay for doing the radio show is by teaching uh, uh 
different forms of, uh, of firearms use under the guise of Battle Road USA. Um, myself and my partner, Mr. Mark Martinez, and we're running events uh, over the course of the next few months now. We finally see ammunition back ourselves. We've got a women's self-defense and safety course that's running Saturday, uh, day after tomorrow, here in Central Texas and developed. This is a course uh, designed to teach women the basic operation uh, of loading and firing and uh, manipulating the most common types of shotguns, rifles, and pistols in use today so that hopefully after the course uh, these uh, women are able to pick up uh, various types of shotguns, rifles, and pistols. They're able to determine if it is loaded or unloaded. They're able to open the action or open the cylinder or to get the magazine out or load or prep a magazine and load a magazine and chamber around and fire it. Uh, then on August 31st, uh, Battle, USA, Battle Road USA is holding a fighting shotgun course. We're going to teach you how to use that uh, uh, home defense or personal defense shotgun. We're going to teach you how to use it uh, as it is meant to be used when defending yourself or your loved ones uh, in your home or some other location. This is a great course. We've already run this course a couple of times. I'm telling you, it's a great course. Uh, we have the, uh, on October 12th, we have the Battle Road USA Zombie Run Gun 4.5 mile looping course with eight shooting stations. Uh, November 9th and 10th, we have the Combat Carbine course. November 11th through the 15th, we have the Precision Rifle Sniper course. Uh, November 19th to the 23rd, we have Squad School. Uh, and, uh, and then we have additional courses being run the rest of the year and starting in the new year. Uh, for more information, go to battleroadusa.com. I want to thank uh, CMD, my co-host. Every time I'm here, he's here. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Sam. God bless you. And uh, we will see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.